0: We are North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa, news, arts, ideas, where you are. On air at 91.1 and 90.9, streaming worldwide at krcb.org. You can also find us on Comcast channels 961 and 202. It's 10 o'clock, and it's time for Percussion discussion. gentlemen and welcome to this edition of percussion discussion here on KRCB FM your North Bay Public Media Connection. I'm your host Jim Laveroni on this show that focuses on drummers percussionists and all the instruments of rhythm that move every genre of music along. Tonight I have the privilege and honor of playing a pre-recorded interview that I did with fabulous drummer and percussionist Daniel Glass. Daniel Glass is an award-winning drummer, author, historian, and educator. He is widely recognized as one of today's foremost authorities on classic American drumming. A member of the pioneering swing group Royal Crown Review since 1994, Daniel has recorded and performed all over the world with many top artists, including Brian Setzer, Bette Midler, Liza Minnelli, and KISS frontman Gene Simmons. For the past two years, he has been voted one of the top five R&B drummers in the world by readers of Modern Drummer and Drum Magazine. As an educator, Daniel has published five books and three DVDs, including the multi-award winning titles The Century Project and The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming. He is a regular contributor to publications like Modern Drummer, Drum, and Classic Drummer. He performs clinics and master classes globally, appearing at many of the world's top drumming festivals. His acclaimed clinics focus on the evolution of the drum set and the impact that this unique instrument has had on American popular music. Interspersed with segments of the interview will be some great songs from Royal Crown Review. Daniel was an absolute pleasure to speak with and is thoroughly knowledgeable about all things drum. I know you'll find him engaging, fascinating, and enjoyable. And as a side note, Daniel will be drumming here in December with the Brian Setzer Orchestra at the Wells Fargo Center. You ought to give yourself a Christmas gift and see this fabulous musician in person. So without further ado, it's time to sit back, relax, and tune in to Daniel Glass here on KRCB-FM and Percussion Discussion. Daniel, you grew up in uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, began playing the drums at age eight. How did you choose the drums, or rather, how did they choose you? And did you take lessons? Who were your mentors, your drum heroes, and some of the examples that you followed?
1: Um, well, good question. Uh, I, I definitely began as a pots and pans kind of guy, as a little guy. Um, and... Uh, expressed a proclivity for hitting things early on. Growing up in Hawaii, um, you know, the Chinese food there is very authentic. I know this is a bit of a sidetrack, but when we would go to Chinese restaurants, um, they didn't give you a fork, you'd ask for a fork. So the default utensil you'd receive were chopsticks. And when I was little, and even when I was not so little, when we would go to a Chinese restaurant, I'd start playing away with the chopsticks, and they would be confiscated instantly. So... Um, I guess, uh, you know, I just expressed an interest in, in rhythm. My mother was a creative person. She was a dancer, uh, ballet and modern dancer. And she, um, when I was about five years old, had a very bad fall and broke her leg. Um, so during the time that she wasn't able to dance, you know, it was a pretty severe injury. She had a hip-length cast. Uh, so So she was out of commission for, you know, maybe eight months or something. During that time, she started taking drum lessons as a way to um, further explore creative avenues. So she would sometimes take me to her lesson after she picked me up from school and I would sit there and I became very interested. So when I, I think when I was about seven or eight, I began to study with the same teacher who was the principal percussionist in the Honolulu Symphony. So, um... That was sort of my first experience, and um, I, early on, kind of discovered rock and roll like so many kids. Um, I remember my mom, also a very hip mom, she took me to see this live concert movie from the Rolling Stones called Ladies and Gentlemen the Rolling Stones, because our babysitter had seen that movie and told us how cool it was, and so I, of course, wanted to go see it, even though I really didn't know that much about what the Rolling Stones were about. But I sort of saw that movie and thought, drums and rock and roll, wouldn't this be cool? So I studied for five years. Um, I studied snare drum and timpani with that classical teacher for five years until I was 13. When I was 13, I got my first drum set. Um, I took only one year of drum set lessons, and then I quit lessons and just started playing you know, in bands and stuff, which I sort of regret now because um, I wish I would have continued to go about it in a more academic way. But during high school and college, I um, I played in a variety of different kinds of bands, um, particularly in high school. You know, I, I did all the school bands. I played in jazz band, orchestra, marching band, concert band. Um, I did Broadway, you know, the played in the pit for some of the Broadway shows they had at the school. So I I definitely kept my hand in it, but at that point I was like, yeah, rock and roll, screw all that lesson stuff, I want to rock, you know. And um, I didn't really formally start studying again until after college. Uh, I was in, you know, again, rock and roll bands. I was in a Pink Floyd tribute band and a Led Zeppelin tribute band when I was in college, which, which were very, they were wonderful bands and really good, and we were very popular around, you know, the Boston area. Um, But it wasn't until after I graduated, I was kind of stuck in Boston for the summer. Uh, I'd gone to Brandeis University and got a degree in psychology, and there was a guy there right near where the university was called, um, his name is Bob Gulati, and uh, he had studied at Berkeley under Alan Dawson. He had been there in the early 70s when Steve Smith was there and a lot of the great, you know, sort of those early 70s years, uh, and was just a fantastic, Bob was a fantastic jazz drummer. So um, I... I thought, well, I'm here in Boston, um, I may as well start studying. And, and that was when I really kind of got my mind blown, because Bob started teaching me jazz, and I, I really began to understand that jazz is something that is infinite, you know, in a way. I mean, you could spend your whole life working on it, and you're never going to get there, you know what I'm saying? And And For me, that was kind of a new concept, you know, rock and roll to me seemed pretty black and white, pretty straightforward, Um, but all of a sudden, all this jazz stuff, and I started listening to fusion, and, you know, um, I had been really big into prog rock, so it was easy to go from the prog rock thing to fusion, and to go from fusion to more straight-ahead jazz. So, after studying with Bob Gilotti for five months, I pretty much... Felt like this was where my heart belonged. You know, I'd been playing music my whole life, and it was sort of like I would be an idiot if I didn't really go jump in full bore. Um, this was uh, in 1988, and I did spend a year after that traveling. I'd already committed to going to Israel, actually, for a year. So I lived in Israel for a year, and I kind of said to myself, if I'm this into music when I get back from Israel, um, as I am now, then I'm going to go to music school. And and I was. I mean, I was I was even more fanatic. I got just completely into into music and woodshedding, and and all of that when I lived in the Middle East. And so, uh, then I had to go back home to Hawaii for a year and get my finances together so I could afford to go to school. And in I guess 1991. I moved to Los Angeles, and when I was there, I went to the Dick Grove School of Music, and that kind of the rest is <laughs> the rest is I don't know if you'd call it history, but the rest is uh, where I ended up. So that's how I got there.
0: You have uh, you have a rather strange, well, not a strange style of of playing, but a different style than most most drummers. You. Would, I guess? Are you calling it left hand strong? Is it uh, what? Is there a term for it? Because Billy Cobham plays what is it left left hand, but it's called strong hand, something or other. You you well, play with, you play with everything on the would left hand side.
1: Strange. I I play exactly the way that a right handed drummer plays. I just reverse the kit. So I play. I set up left handed. You could say I play a left handed setup. Um. So I just play literally what, you know, people say it's backwards, but I don't like to think of myself as being backwards. I just play, you know, left-handed. So if you were to look at a drum set in the mirror, um, that's how I set up. And uh, I don't know, somehow for people, people get really hung up on that, and I can't quite figure out why. You know, I'll do like a three-hour clinic all about the history and evolution of drumming and, you know, this whole thing. And after all of this, I say, any questions? And the first question is, how come you play drums left-handed, you know, and it's sort of like, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, may, I guess to me it's not that unusual, but
0: well, I um, yeah, I I didn't mean to I didn't mean to indicate strange. I guess it is um more um it's not really prevalent. So when you see right. your you see you on YouTube or you see a video of you playing um and I'm left-handed. I'm uh-huh. I'm left-handed, but I, I you know, uh, I set up the regular way, and so you see it on YouTube, and you go, "Well, wait a minute, what? Something is not right." You notice uh-huh. you're playing initially, and then you go, "Oh, I see. I see." The Tom Toms are, yeah, it, it does
1: look a little different. Yeah, it just looks sure. a little different. Yeah. And um, I
0: didn't mean to but, offend uh, you by you saying, you <laughs> I,
1: I was I was a left-handed person, and um, when I began to play drum set, I sort of tried it both ways. And I just felt more comfortable playing left-handed. And actually, one of my first drum heroes was Ian Pace from Deep Purple. And I noticed that he set up backwards, quote unquote, to the way that that other drummers set up. And I figured, well, if if he could do it, I could do it. You know, so that's sort of why I, I began playing that way. And then I, then that just became the way that I played. So, you know, it's it's um it's a little bit of an odd thing going through life as a left-handed drummer, but. Uh, you know, here I am. I'm still still alive, still kicking.
2: in. Okay. you back on your heels, baby. So far back, your hemline's touching dirt, and you never know, baby. Employed by denial, paid in a half. And everyone knows you're crazy, and they're probably right. And everyone knows. No.
0: Next time on LA Theatre Works, two best friends square off in a high stakes game of truth, identity, and romance.
1: I'm in love with Gwendolyn. I've come up to town expressly to propose to her. I thought you would come
2: up for pleasure. I call that business. The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde. Next time on LA Theatre Works.
0: The Importance of Being Earnest on L.A. Theater Works. That's this Saturday here on KRCB-FM at 6 o'clock in the evening and then repeated again at 12 midnight. You're listening to Percussion Discussion. My name is Jim Laveroni and we're fortunate to have Daniel Glass in a pre-recorded interview. Daniel, an educator, a drummer, a fabulous, fabulous musician, very nice guy. Plays for the Brian Setzer Orchestra and also plays for Royal Crown Review. You've heard Royal Crown Review on my show several times before. They play some great, great music. In that uh, last set, you heard Salt Peanuts, and that's from the CD Contender. And also, everyone knows you're crazy. Also, Contender, and uh, that was a uh, that was a fabulous CD for Royal Crown Review and for Daniel in particular. As you'll hear later on, he co-wrote several of the songs. Um, So we're going to continue with Daniel in just a moment. Uh, I want to let you know that support for percussion discussion and other programming on KRCB-FM comes from members and from the Mill Valley Film Festival, named by Screen International as one of the top 10 U.S. film festivals. 11 days of films, concerts, spotlights, and tributes at venues throughout Marin County, October 3rd through the 13th. More information is available at MVFF.com. In this next segment, Daniel Glass speaks of his passion for the drums and his role in Royal Crown Review, which took him from the rear of the band to the role of co-writer of many songs and then producer. The other, the other thing you just mentioned that that uh, you 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 made a statement. If he could do it, I could do it. Uh, it's right. almost like in um, your videos that I've reviewed the uh, the Century Project and other things. That there's not a whole lot of people who are involved to the extent that you are immersed in not only the um, the beginning of drum sets but how they were incorporated in different bands. Um, it seems that that. You know, other drummers may have the interest, but you've actually immersed yourself in that, correct?
1: Uh, I guess so, yeah. It's kind of become my passion.
0: And when did that start?
1: Well, um, when I got out of music school, um, I freelanced around L.A. for a couple of years and was just trying to figure out the next step. And um, I had never, it's not as if, you know, I grew up, uh, even concerning myself with the history of the drum set or with learning about sort of classic styles of drumming. That that never occurred to me, and I really had no interest in it. I was a rocker, and then I was, you know, into jazz, and I wanted to, like so many other people, I wanted to move to Los Angeles and become Vinnie Kaliuta, you know what I mean, become kind of the hot studio guy, and um, that was what I was excited about. Um, and, uh, but when I, you know, when I got out of music school, uh, I, a couple of the guys I'd gone to school with were in a band called Royal Crown Review, um, or they had they had been in that same school a little bit earlier and our paths crossed, and they were onto to something really cool. There was this groundswell just getting underway in Los Angeles of this new scene, this kind of swing scene, and I didn't really know much about what it was all about, but my paths were crossing with people that were in the rockabilly world and the swing world and the ska world, which are all these kind of underground, cool scenes that were happening in L.A. that actually had probably all kind of come out of punk. And I think a lot of people that were into that stuff, um, you know, they were originally punkers and then kind of grew up a little bit and weren't into getting slammed around in the mosh pit anymore. Uh, but they realized that, you know, American roots styles of music like rhythm and blues and rockabilly and swing and early rock and roll were cool like punk in that they were rebellious, they were raw, they were kind of in your face, and, and they had like a fashion statement that went with them. You know, you, you dress up and do your hair up and whatever. And so, um, and you could also find a lot of stuff. You could find a lot of cool vintage clothes at Goodwill. For very cheap You could find Old records Of this stuff For very cheap You could find Old cars And old instruments You know Vintage instruments So because That stuff was plentiful A scene sort of Arose And that was Happening um, In the early 90s In LA It was really starting To happen pretty good And I knew some people On the scene So in 93 I got involved With some of the guys From Royal Crown Review Who were playing in In like a bebop Side project That was called Um the jazz jury, and I played with them for about six or eight months, and it was real hard bebop kind of stuff, but they liked what I was doing, and they said, "Look, you know we might be making a change in Royal Crown Review, our bass player and drummer. they go away on tour with another band all the time, and they 're going to be gone, and we want you to sub for them, and if it works out you 'll be in so um, I got thrown into this band all of a sudden, and for me, it you know just started as like this is a cool gig they were hot. You know, they were playing a club called the Derby. There was lines around the block happening. The scene was really picking up. And I didn't know that much about it. I had a ponytail. I had long hair. So, you know, they kind gave, of gave me a haircut, told me how to kind of comb my hair. Um, somebody gave me a vintage suit and a couple of ties, and that's how I started. I, I already had actually um, one vintage kit with me, I think, um, a 1960s Ludwig kit. But you know i I sort of approached the gig as as a, more of a jazz and a bop gig and was putting in a lot of choppy stuff or Tony Williams stuff or playing the big band figures in a really modern way, and they were kind of like, well, that's not really the right thing." So I started really listening to the music that was influencing these guys and to the cover tunes we were doing, and I suddenly started to realize that there was a whole lot of music out there that really wasn't being talked about. I mean, I, I consider myself a student of music. I had a lot of books. I had a lot of DVDs. But when we were, you know, started getting on the road and I started going and trying to find the books and DVDs that were going to teach me about this, this particular, these styles, what I like to call American roots music or classic American music, which is sort of early jazz, 1930s swing, rhythm and blues of the 40s and 50s, jump blues, rockabilly, early rock and roll. There was nothing written... No instructional materials written for drummers. So um, I started trying to really, you know, the guys in the band were very big students of history, and um, I started to just get hooked into that whole thing. I started to, to understand that this music rocked as much as rock and roll that we think of today, that it wasn't square, that it wasn't something only your grandmother could appreciate. You know, the way that Royal Crown Review approached it playing, like, you know, the the way we approached projecting ourselves as a seven-piece swing band was sort of like, um, you know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with Los Angeles, but if you're a young band trying to get going in Los Angeles, it's kind of like there's this whole sort of attitude that you get from the audience of like, yeah, I've seen it all before, you know, impress me. So people standing there with their arms crossed, not enthusiastic, you know, not, you know, you kind of have to prove yourself. And so we have this kind of com- combining the rock and roll and punk rock upbringing we had, but also this sort of like we had to prove ourselves at every gig. So here we were wearing suits and we had a horn section, an upright bass, but we would hit you like a freight train. You know, we would just grab you by the lapels and just, you'd walk out of there feeling like you had that punch in the gut the way you would after a rock concert. And I think I started realizing, and and other people, you know, of our generation, 20s and 30s, dumped some things, and younger, you know, started to realize, this music rocks really hard. And so that's sort of where it all began for me. And the more that, you know, then the next phase of all this was that I decided, well, I have this whole college degree, and I've been, you know, trained as a researcher and a writer but since I finished college in 1988, I haven't really done anything with all of that. And, I'm, you know, I'm an intellectual at heart. Um, and I'm somebody who is a student of the world and love, you know, a variety of things in my life. And so after a few years, I thought, well, let me, since I can't find any instructional materials, let me start interviewing the drummers that actually played on all these records, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And, you know, luckily, many of them had retired to Los Angeles. Um, So I started calling guys up and just cold calling them, saying, hey, I play in this band. I'm interested in understanding why you um, played the way you did on this record or what was this style about or what was it like to play with Louis Jordan or Benny Goodman or Duke Ellington or, you know. And once I started meeting these guys, then it really became a passion because I realized these guys were old. Some of them started passing away. Uh, There was one guy in particular, Johnny Kirkwood. I had written um, a feature story about him. And, you know, he was uh, one of the original drummers with Louis Louis Jordan. He played with him in the early 50s. Um, He he had been a, uh, you know, played a lot with guys like uh, later on in the 60s and 70s with, um, you know, like, uh, um, what's the jazz organ player, Jimmy uh, Smith. Played with Jimmy Smith. And, you know, he was like a working guy around L.A. that played with, A ton of people had this whole history, Um, and he unfortunately passed away from a massive stroke before this feature came out that I was writing on him, and I think that really affected me because it was like, wow, you know, this guy has so much to offer the world. He's done so much. He's played with so many legends, and yet no one had ever seen fit to write a drum feature about him. He was relatively, well, I'd say almost completely unknown in the drumming world. And so I began this quest in a way to meet as many of the guys as I could that played on all these records that we loved and to start to document their stories. And not so much their stories about, well, here's, here's a fun anecdote about what it was like to play with Benny Goodman or to be on the road. Certainly that was cool, but I was really interested in the drumming techniques, the way the records were recorded, why the, the records sound the way they did, what the circumstances were at the time that caused them to play the way that they did. What was happening in the world? You know, why is it that you didn't play backbeats in the 40s, but then by the end of the 40s, you're hearing backbeats from start to finish, you know? And all these kind of questions were coming up with me, for me, because I was out there every night trying to play the music myself. So that's really where my obsession began, and it's over the years just snowballed into kind of, this is my thing now, you know, although I do play a lot of other styles of music as well, um, but this is certainly what I'm known for
0: your Your involvement with Royal Crown Review has been different than most drummers that belong to bands uh, and as the as the focus of this show um, tries to eliminate we we often think of drummers as being in the back and background, really not not having a job other than to set the tempo the rhythm the timing but they're in the background uh, mm-hmm. one of the CDs the contender for royal crown review you wrote you co-wrote five tracks and you produced 2004's greetings from hollywood cd right so obviously you're educated to the point where where now this is your passion and your focus was this a conscious effort to move the drummer such as yourself to the forefront and have more of a speaking and producing voice for the Royal Crown Review.
1: Um, well, that's a good question. I think I think at first, you know, I was considered the new guy in the band, so I just sort of played along. But um, you know, as and didn't really um, assume any kind of a role in a business sense. I think I think what it comes down to is I, I have. The more that I was involved in the music industry, the more that I realized that I wasn't just content being a sideman, somebody who gets a call to go do a gig, or just being a drummer in the band and letting somebody else determine my own destiny, I guess. And um, I also had a lot of skills that I could bring to the band uh, that the other guys didn't have. I, you know, just, I had, had some good education. A lot of the guys in the band, you know, uh, we had three guys in the band that, then, that never finished high school. Now, that's not, I'm not... I don't mean that in a derogatory way or a way or putting them down because they, were, they left school because they were doing so well as a musician that they decided to pursue that. But I had had, you know, some other experiences in life and developed some other skills. And so kind of within a fairly short period of time, I started to assume more and more responsibility of running the business of the band and I guess, for whatever reason, that appealed to me. I sort of, um, I liked being able to kind of control where the band was going, not just on a musical level, but um, on a, on a uh, kind of just where the ship was being steered, I guess, or you know, how we were presenting ourselves to the world. Um, and interestingly, you know, the songwriting thing just uh like when we put out our first album you know the guy said well you know this is how the songwriting thing works if you write melodies and lyrics you can copyright those and so if you write melody and lyrics for a song then you're the songwriter so on our second warner brothers record the contender like you mentioned i just got into a groove of doing that with our singer and we just ended up writing a bunch of the tunes on that record um and I think that just sort of translated. And At that point, I was, I was beginning the whole process of writing the books and the DVDs. So I took my creative energy um, out of the songwriting realm and put it more into, into kind of building the Daniel Glass brand. I guess what I eventually saw was, yeah, it's cool to be part of a band, but I'm interested in developing you know, my own brand. And I had looked at, you know, along the way I'd met Zorro... I uh, met Zorro in the late 90s, um, probably around 99, 2000. And he was a big influence on me because um, I saw how he had really created his brand, you know, and other guys like Steve Smith, um, nowadays Stanton Moore, you know, um, I think more and more of the world that we live in, it's really important that you sort of look at yourself as a brand, as a business, um, in addition to just being somebody who gets called for gigs, you know, because then your fortunes ride on somebody else's decision-making or somebody else gets all the credit and you're back there working just as hard or you're spending just as many months or years on the road. Um, so I guess that's sort of where that comes from, my, my desire to kind of create a business. And and since <clears throat> 2000, I've really run with that. It's taken a long time to come to fruition because I was busy with the band touring and, and doing other things. Um, but, and also, you know, what I do is very unusual in, in, the, in the drumming community. I don't, I'm not a funk drummer. I'm not a rock drummer. I'm not a jazz drummer, per se, who, you know, like, I, I sort of inhabit this very strange world where I not only have to be good at what I do, but I have to teach people why it's important that they should be interested in what I do. You know what I mean? There's not like a already well-defined genre or niche that existed that I could plug myself into, you know. So it's sort of like, <clears throat> it's been a kind of a double challenge. I've had to not only kind of create the niche, but then create the market or create the, uh, in, the impetus for people to want to check out what it is that I'm doing. I kind of have to explain it to them. Um, so whether they now read one of my books or see one of my DVDs, they can kind of enter my world, and once they get into my world, I hopefully you know, can explain to them, here's why it's important to understand about your history and tradition and to know something about some of these earlier styles, even if, even if you, know, you don't necessarily play those styles in your everyday workings as a drummer, but here's why you should know about them.
0: And so when we're talking about the Daniel Glass brand that you've come up with, uh, was your debut as a leader with the Daniel Glass trio and involvement of this?
1: I guess. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of my first project as a leader and really getting my feet wet with like doing everything myself. I produced that record. I financed that record. Um, I had a partner, we had a small label that we put out just a couple records on, but that kind of an experience of running a business and just seeing kind of what that was like. I mean, you know, it's really trial and error. I wouldn't say that, um, you know, one day I opened a store or something like that. It just sort of evolved over time. And eventually I began to see how I could present what I do to the world in sort of an organized fashion, you know, and come up with a look and an aesthetic and a logo and, um, you know, all those kind of things that people associate with a brand so that when, you know, not, not to mention putting out quality music and quality products so that, you know, that people would want to get, obviously, but, but um, or, you know, touring with Brian Setzer or, or whatever it may be, um, that when people think of you, they, they, Think of certain things. Um, if somebody thinks of Zorro, they automatically think of funk and soul and hip hop, and they think of a great educator, you know, and, and those sorts of things. And, and they know they're going to get something of quality. So that was sort of, you know, I mean, I, I spent a long time with Zorro because we, when I first met him, he was editing Stick It Magazine, and that was around 2000, and I was just starting to, to write books and articles and things. And so I wrote quite a few major features for Stick it when Zorro was the editor. And out of that, he said, well, why don't you write the prequel to My Commandments book, and we'll work on that project together. And the idea was to take his R&B book and write about sort of the roots of that, you know, of earlier rhythm and blues, so the R&B of the 40s and 50s, that led to soul and funk and, and you know, 60s soul, 70s funk and, and 80s hip-hop which is what his area of specialty was. So, I learned a lot from Zorro because he, you know, he's a he's not only a powerful person and a driven person, an ambitious person and a great drummer, uh, has a great business sense and has an incredibly positive attitude. He's like a motivator, you know. So, I really like he was a real big mentor for me as far as this whole idea of trying to get where I'm going with this stuff. And I guess at the end of the day, the, the purpose of it all is that I'm, you know, as I get older, more and more, I am in charge of my own destiny. I'm in charge of my own business. People hire me, and you know, to, to do my thing, as opposed to me waiting for the phone to ring, for somebody to call me as a sideman. You know.
2: I know someday I'll discover one. My true lover, I'll tell her right from the start. If you want my heart, you know what you gotta do. You gotta work, word, oh, baby, work, work, work. Oh, baby, work, work, work. If I'm a heart, loving daddy, you could be tall, short or fatty. you could be any size. Long as you wax, you know what you gotta do. You gotta work, 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 baby. Work, 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 oh baby. Work, work, work. If I maintain my employment, you should supply the enjoyment. Long as I stay on the job, your heart ought to throb. You know what you gotta do. You gotta work. Something to eat, but you know what you gotta do? You got work, work, work. on work. Oh, work, work, work. Yeah, baby, work, work, work. When I sit down on your sofa, you better not be no loafer. I'll tell you now, there's no doubt, you're lazy, you're out. You know what you gotta do? One time. She watches the ships that go sail Sailing somewhere Beyond the sea Somewhere watching for me If I could fly like birds on high Then straight to your arms I'd go sail and somewhere Beyond the sea Well, she's there watching for me If I could fly like birds on high Then straight to your arms I'd go sail, sailing But the far Beyond the stars. And it's clear beyond the moon And I know All If a cool case of lead poisoning you do not wish to contract You better learn to do the bop kit, baby Or start pushing some daisies, yeah So now you can see Zip gun bop is meant to be Cause there's lots of lead flying couple lonely gals crying So you can hear a cat shooting, baby Shooting So you learn my two-step jack the
0: I'm Bill Moyers. This week on Moyers & Company, the Supreme Court considers handing the rich even more power over democracy. And the noted storyteller and historian Joyce Appleby explores how curiosity liberated the old world to create the new. Curiosity depends upon your imagining something different from what exists. I hope you'll join us. And I hope you'll join us... Moyers and Company, 9 o'clock on Sunday evening here on KRCB FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. News, arts, ideas, where you are. We're on the air at 91.1 and 90.9, streaming worldwide at krcb.org. And you can also find us on Comcast, channels 961 and 202. Having a great time in the studio listening to this pre recorded interview with Daniel Glass, musician, author, composer, producer all kinds of things he's just a talented talented young man and a real pleasure to talk to and you don't want to hear me anymore so we're going to get right back into the next segment and in this segment uh, Daniel talks about representing the United States in the various countries that Royal Crown Review toured in and also how he ended up playing with the Brian Setzer Orchestra and of course. In that last set, we had some great, great music. want to let you know what those tunes were. Uh, we had Work Baby Work. We also had uh, Contender. Work Baby Work is from the CD, Contender. Contender, the title track from that same CD. "Walkin' Like Brando, also from Contender, Beyond the Sea. And then we had Zip Gun Bop. And I'm going to give you the... Um, internet information on Daniel, so that you can buy these, download them from iTunes, however you want to get them, some great, great tunes and some great drumming on these tunes. I just sit here and wonder and say, I don't think I could ever get to be that fast. Anyway, so I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. I'm in the studio listening to it as you are. So we're going to continue now with Daniel Glass on Percussion Discussion. So Royal Crown Review uh, enjoyed a great deal of success, a touring success, TV, film. Yep. Um, you guys went on tours to Moscow, Egypt, Europe, Australia, Japan. Yeah, um, we've
1: been to Australia 12 times. <laughs> wow.
0: So, so what's it like to see the world as a musician and then entertaining folks, but overall representing the United States?
1: Well, it's funny you mention that because we never really thought about it that way, um, but it culminated in 2010 with the United States government actually hiring us as, you know, ambassadors in a way, and we did a, an official State Department-sponsored tour of Egypt of, Ch- of uh, well, Cairo and Alexandria. Uh, this was about a year before they had their, um, you know, major kind of revolution uh, over there, um, but. You know, at that point, it was it was. Um, we really felt like, wow, we are representing, you know, America and American music, and really the best that America has to offer. I think because so many people outside of this country, you know, have so many, you know, misguided notion. I'm Not misguided, but you know, a certain kind of perspective, especially like in the Arab world, you know, they see us as being uh, aggressors who are there bombing them to pieces to take their oil. That's basically how they see us. Now, whether that's true or not, 100%, you know, it's hard to say, but I certainly could understand how they would feel that way because to some degree that is why we're there and why we have made wars over there or whatever. But, um, you know, for us to come through as as a bunch of of swing musicians, you know, and we're clean cut and we wear suits and um, we represent sort of an earlier time um, where this music just makes you feel good and you want to tap your feet and jump around to it, um, I think that has stood us in good stead all around the world, you know. And we, we really make a huge effort to make our show a show. You know, we, we believe that it's okay to, to both play great music and to entertain people, which I think a lot of musicians, when they get sort of to a place where they're a virtuoso you know, on their instrument or, or they become very highly technically adept, they, they sort of don't think that it's necessary or incumbent upon them to entertain people, that entertainment is a lower form of what they do, you know. And certainly there's a fine line, I guess, between entertaining people and being a clown, you know, a ham bone. Um, but at the same time, I think it's about the sincerity with which you present it. And I think for us, you know, it just was about the show, you know, a lot of it was about the show because that's how guys did it back in the 40s and 50s. It was about entertainment. So um, I think that's always come naturally to us. We still always strive to put on a really high energy show and to just be really out there to the audience, you know. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's, that's how I would answer that question.
0: Uh, you've played with with a bunch of people outside of uh, Royal Crown Review, including Gene Simmons, Bette Midler, uh, Freddie Cole, uh, Michael Andrews Swing Orchestra. So my question is, how would you hook up with the Brian Setzer Orchestra?
1: Uh, well, we have always had a fairly close connection to Brian, uh, A, because he's in, kind of, you know, comes from the same place that we do. And, and he, we were all in Los Angeles in the early 90s, uh, and he was just getting his big band off the ground at that time. And, of course, we were kind of... We had a little big band. Um, and so, you know, Brian would occasionally come out to our shows and hang out uh, and whatnot. And um, and then his manager actually approached us and asked if we... You know, this was right after I got in the band and we were looking to really, you know, put together a team and get a serious record deal and all this kind of stuff. So um, we... Brian's manager, Dave Kaplan, actually managed Royal Crown Review for about six years. And um, so uh, during that time, you know, we we had the same management. I got close with the management. We opened for Brian on a bunch of occasions. We played Brian's wedding um, back in, you know, in the mid-90s. So a few years ago, uh, the management called me and said they were looking for a drummer. And uh, that was how it happened. And they knew who I was and... You know, Royal Crown Review hasn't been working all that much the last few years, so um, it, it, it's, I've been able to make both work out, and that's been great.
2: I don't mind the way you talk But if you touch me, something's got to give i live the life I love And I love the life I live Just like that My diamond ring and my money too Tomorrow night they could belong to you. The girls move me at their will. I live the life I love and I love the life I live. I may be a hundred on a breath this time. Tomorrow night can't cover your dime. If I'm flat, my kitten dig me still. I'm just trying to tell you, Daddy, how I feel. walking as i pass you by don't talk about me because i could be high just forgive me if you will i live the life I love and i love the life i live life you just may not dig but your aspersions will not flip my wig opinions hold water like a seal i live the life of love and i love the life i live i may lay a hundred on a bed this time tomorrow night can't cover your dime and if I'm flat, my kitten digs me still. I'm just trying to tell you, Daddy, how I feel. You see me walking as I pass you by. Don't talk about me because I could be high. And just forgive me if you will. I live the life I love, and I love the life I live. I live the life I love. And...
0: This is Edge Thompson inviting you to join Mike Greensill and me each week here on KRCB, Ronard Park, Santa Rosa, live, 10 a.m. to noon, for two hours of conversation, music, and play. Authors, writers, thinkers, technologists, humorists, musicians, all live, and you can be part of the audience right here 10 a.m. to noon or in person. For more information, wcl.org. West Coast Live here on KRCB-FM, Saturday, 10 until noon. Well, in that last set, we heard Hey Pachuco for a kind of review from the CD Muggsy's Move, Big Boss Lee, and that's the CD contender. And I love the life I live. So, uh, in this next segment, Daniel is going to give some sage advice for aspiring musicians and talks about the Century Project and Traps, which I'm going to give you a brief introduction. Both are DVDs and both are available on Daniel Glass's website. Um, but uh, this is created, the Century Project is created by award winning drummer, author, educator Daniel Glass, who you're listening tonight on a pre recorded interview. It takes you on a thrilling journey through 100 years of music history, tracing the story of the drum set from its inception at the end of the Civil War, 1865, to the dawn of the British invasion, 1965. So 1865 to 1965, it's a fascinating journey about the evolution of the drum set. And then there's a, another DVD called Traps, The Incredible Story of Vintage Drum, which is an in-depth and highly entertaining DVD designed to introduce modern drummers to the evolution of their instrument. It's also hosted by Daniel and gives an unprecedented collection of vintage gear, including many rare and museum, museum-quality pieces. takes you on a fascinating 100-year journey that starts before the invention of the bass drum pedal and ends with the legendary Ludwig Oyster Black Pearl Ringo kit. So both are on CDs, or DVDs, and both are available at Daniel Glass's uh, website, which is www.danielglass.com. Okay? So check that out, and we're going to get right to uh, this next segment where uh, where Daniel is giving some great advice. So listen up, and hopefully we can fit in some music with it. So the Century Project and uh, Traps DVDs, You know, to me as a drummer and percussionist, absolutely amazing, interesting, very in-depth. What about uh, people who um, are not into drums or percussion? Are you trying to gather them into the audience just even as a sense of history as as to what you're working on now, the roots? Uh, Are you finding an audience other than drummers and percussionists?
1: Absolutely. I guess... For your listeners who don't know about the Century Project and TRAPS, maybe I could just explain what those are. Is that okay? Sure. To do? And then we'll, we'll take it from there. So the Century Project, uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is that in addition to researching and interviewing guys and playing a lot of gigs and writing and all that, was that I started doing clinics in the early 2000s. Um, because, again, I saw that as another avenue that I could go in um, And I wasn't really sure if people were going to take to what I was talking about because, again, I I, I sort of, um, you know, this was, for most people, this is very alien stuff or was. I think people are getting a little more familiar with it because I've been stomping my feet and jumping around now in the drumming community for a number of years kind of screaming about how it's important for people to to know about this stuff. But um, back in the early 2000s when I started doing clinics, I – you know, I didn't really know how people were going to react. And so I tried to take some of the lessons from RCR and apply those to the clinic situation, which was give people a presentation that they were going to um, understand on their own level. So I said, well, what makes a good drum clinic? Well, you know, uh, the drum clinics I liked was where I learned something and the guy was personable and he had a, you know, kind of had a, a A a, a curriculum, you know, something he was specifically talking about, and then obviously great playing. Um, So I started kind of devising, again, this was all trial by error and just sort of figuring it out as I went, but creating a drum clinic that would look at the evolution of drumming a little bit. And what was so interesting was that instead of people finding this to be boring or dull, they really took to it because there was nobody out there talking about this stuff. And I had found it so fascinating and so inspiring that it was sort of like, you know, the experience of me doing a clinic is like me telling you about, say, a great movie I just saw or a great band that I just saw. You know, it's like, dude, you've got to check this out. And as opposed to sort of talking down to people, Um, saying, well, what's happening today sucks. What you guys really need to do is go back and check this other stuff out because it's way better, you know. uh, which is sort of the attitude that a lot of academics or historians take. I was like, I'm a modern drummer. I grew up listening to rock and roll. I didn't play with the Glenn Miller band in the 40s, but I came to love this stuff, and here's why, and here's how it's made my playing as a modern drummer in the 21st century better, and here's why it can help you you know so the message was not just giving people information but it was like here's something that's really cool and here's something that you can you know use in your own life as a drummer and and that message again took a little while to kind of get clarified but once it did then I realized okay this is a really great a great kind of message for for people you know and Once people found out some of this information that I was talking about with regard to the evolution of drumming, they were like, dude, this is awesome. This is so fascinating. So that 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 helped me out that I got a a good response and I, you know, just started developing this clinic and eventually the clinic got long. You know, I was just adding more information all the time. And eventually I would I was doing this clinic for like three hours and I was like, This is ridiculous. I need to compile this in, in a DVD. I need to document this. So I started um, talking in 2010. Um, I did a... Um, hold on just one sec here. In 2010, I um, I began... I, I did the, a drum channel show, DC Live. Um, I went out to the drum channel studios. Don Lombardi interviewed me. Don Lombardi is the president and founder of of uh, D.W., of which I am an endorser. Uh, but he also runs Drum Channel, which is, has nothing to do with D.W. It's a purely educational uh, arena. And he, the other thing that Don and I had in common was that both of us had been students of Freddy Gruber. So um, Don was really excited about what I was doing, and he said, you know, I'd love to, to do a DVD with you here. And it worked out great because um, the musicians that I... Um, you know, had been playing with in Los Angeles and doing all these different gigs with, and uh, all of my vintage gear that I'd collected over the years was, was all in, in Los Angeles. But I, in 2010, moved to New York. So the next two years were me going back and forth to LA um, and organizing and working with, with Don on putting together what was now called the Century Project. And it's sort of an arbitrary century, but I thought a good place to start would be 1865, the end of the Civil War, because, number one, that was the, around that time drummers began to start wanting to put a bass drum and a snare drum together and play them at the same time. So it really was the very beginnings of where the drum set came from. And at the same time after the Civil War, African Americans were, you know, slaves were free. And so they began to participate in American society, um, in musically speaking, quite a bit more. And and as a result of that, um, our music, our pop music, that you know, starting in, with ragtime at the end of the um, at the end of the 1800s, uh, really came to be. And that's where all of our other pop music, leading right up to hip hop today, comes from. So, you know, it, it, 1865 was a good place to start, and then sort of 1965, 100 years later, was a good place to end because um, that's sort of where the British invasion happened. And um, the drum set as we know it, the blueprint for the drum set was sort of finalized at that point. The formula for the drum set with a a ride and a crash cymbal and a hi-hat and a kick drum and toms that went from high to low, you know, from from right to left, Um, all of these elements finally were all part of the drum set. But in the intervening 100-year period, there was this tremendous amount of evolution that happened, uh, where you could literally go from no drum set to a guy playing a bass drum and a snare drum with only the sticks at the same time, you know, without a pedal, all the way up to basically to Ringo. And, and the reason I kind of talk about Ringo and the Beatles in 65 playing at Shea Stadium is because Ringo... Um, used the match grip uh, as his default grip, which was very unusual for that time. Most drummers prior to that did not play match grip unless they were playing a solo or hitting, you know, very hard. Uh, And I think partly because the Beatles were playing in these giant venues where no real band had ever played before, he really had to wail. And so he started using match grip. and, And when the Beatles played Ed Sullivan and did those tours in the 64 and 65, kind of overnight, the default grip switched from being uh, traditional grip to match grip. So to me, that's sort of the final element in not only in the evolution of the drum set itself, but sort of the standard rock way that we play it today, which is straight eighth notes on a hi-hat, you know, boom, splat, boom, boom, splat. And, you know, even that really was just starting to happen around the time of Ringo. So... That's that's how I arrived at the dates of the century. And the other fun part of the century project in addition to lecturing as if I was in my clinic and sharing the evolution and what happened in America and how music reacted and where all the pieces of the drum set came from, how many of them were brought by immigrants to this country and what drummers were doing that they were, you know, they weren't just playing say jazz music or ragtime music you know, that they were also playing uh, for stage shows and they were playing um, for silent films. Uh, and, you know, they, it was a really different world that drummers inhabited. They did a lot of different kinds of things that we don't necessarily think of today. But that, for example, is why the Chinese tom, you know, first came into the drum set or where the hi-hat first came from or, you know, whatever. So it's, it's really a look at a 100-year history of America and American music, and taking you on a guided tour through that century from the perspective of the drummer. Because the drum set, more than any other instrument, is America's instrument. It evolved alongside America, and it evolved in a direct relationship with the music that was happening at that time. So, um, you know, like, for example, a piano or a guitar, those instruments were already in existence prior to that time. The way they were tuned was already set. You know, the way the technique used to play them was already set. And yes, they were played in different ways by musicians during that time period. And Eventually they were electrified, of course. But, um, you know, Jimi Hendrix and a classical guitar player from the 1800s basically were still playing the same instrument. You know, the drum set, on the other hand, just continued to evolve radically every decade and where a drummer kept time and what, the drum set was used for and how it could be used, uh, it just kept changing, you know, and so it really evolved alongside America. So to answer your question, and I'm sorry it took me so long to get there, but what, one of the exciting things I learned when I would do my clinic is that, say, the mothers or the parents, you know, or the girlfriend or wife of the drummer that was there in attendance, but who was also there just as a, as a you know, somebody who was just watching, would come up to me and say, I can't believe that. I'm not a drummer, but this was totally fascinating, and I loved this. So when I designed the Century Project, and we spent those two years planning it all out, uh, you know, we had to answer a lot of questions. Who is our demographic, and what are we trying to do with this? And certainly it is about drumming and drummers, but part of the way I designed it, the way I did, was so that if you enjoy music or enjoy history, um, or just want to understand where we come from musically, that you're going to love this as well. Uh, And one of the things I'm doing now that that the DVDs have been out for six or eight months, uh, the next phase for me is to take what I do into a broader educational environment. Because I do believe that even though I'm a drummer, that I can talk about these things in slightly more general terms. Because the information is just very interesting, you know. Uh, And I think I can educate a lot of other types of of musicians other than just drummers um, or students in general, even if they're not musicians, uh, into, you know, why we... You know, the whole idea for me is, why do we play the way we do today? Why is our music the way that it is today? And these are very more general questions. Um, They're not so specifically related to the drums, drums is a great way to tell that story, but we could talk about it in more general terms. And I personally believe that here in the 21st century, we need now especially to preserve and understand the legacy of our contemporary popular music because the people who created that music, who are all these guys that I was interviewing, are all leaving us. And within another decade or so, the creators of rock and roll will, will all be gone, you know, or of swing, or of bebop jazz, or of, um, you know, rockabilly, they're all going to be gone. So, we need to document what they were about, preserve, you know, learn from them, understand why they played the way that we did, because every time you or I sit down to play at a drum set, we are, you know, essentially replicating things that, that these, these men and women actually created.
0: So... As we uh, sum up the interview, Daniel, um, let me ask you a question about what advice you have for aspiring musicians of any age with any instrument.
1: Huh. Uh, well, that's a, that's a fairly um, broad question, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you know, on a technical level, if you're really passionate about what you're doing, then practice a lot and get as good as you can now, because it's a tough world out here today, trying to make a living as a musician, no matter what you do. And if your passion is to make a living as a musician, um, you know, then you better get serious about it, and the sooner the better. And I, and you know, it's, it's, I can't, I, I can't overstate that enough. Um, you know it's and it's hard because for me i didn't even sort of discover my own passion for music until or passionate enough to want to try to make a living at it until I was in my early twenties. But I wish certainly that I had kind of realized that already when I was a much younger man in my teens, and had gotten much more serious about it because I felt like I was at a disadvantage I was always playing catch up you know to try to to try to really become a better and, and more employable musician. Um, so that's one thing, you know, if you're serious about it, get serious and the sooner the better. Uh, the second thing I would say to anybody who is a musician and wants to, you know, is ambitious and wants to do great things as a musician and wants to have their voice heard and, and wants to not only just make a living, but actually say something as an artist is that, you know, Learn as much as you can about all kinds of music. Um, open yourself up. Become a sponge. You know, don't just say, I'm a this kind of drummer or that kind of drummer. Or why would I listen to X style of music? It has nothing to do with what I do as a Y kind of drummer, you know. Um, that's uh, not, you know, the what I learned you know what i where i started out as when i first decided i was going to become a professional musician at the age of 22 and where i am today it's like you know columbus thinking that he's going to find the east indies and instead he finds america you know what i mean i sort of started out going in one direction and then where i landed and where what has become what what has sort of been my artistic contribution as i as i go at least right now is totally different than what I thought, and, and the reason for that is that I left my mind open. I allowed myself to embrace you know, when I joined Royal Car View, I thought, okay, well, this is a good gig. I can make some money doing this, and it's steady work, but what these guys are all about is weird for me. It's alien. But you know, I opened myself up and, and humbled myself and didn't have an attitude about it, and tried to learn so I could be the best at what it is they were offering me. And if I was still trying to be Vinnie Collyuda in Los Angeles today and had rejected all that, who knows where I'd be, you know? Um, so I feel very blessed and humbled that uh, I had this opportunity. You know, I do a whole clinic on preparation, and I learned one of the best, most valuable lessons of my life when I was in, in school. I was a music student. And the teacher said, look, you know, you may look at, some famous musician say, man, that guy is so lucky he gets to play with this person and that person. He gets to tour. He gets to do all this great stuff. And it's like, really, there is no such thing as luck. Luck happens when opportunity meets preparation. In other words, life can throw you all kinds of great opportunities. And if you are not prepared to take advantage of them, then you will not succeed. And, you know, I had a couple painful lessons in my Earlier years, especially doing projects outside of RCR, where I was not prepared, and I didn't capitalize. They didn't hire me. They didn't use me. Or I got I got fired off of uh, a really major album project once that just was crushing. You know, crushed me. Um, But I learned that life is about preparation. You know, and this is probably I do this whole clinic on preparation, and I just love thinking about it this way. But life. Your life is preparation. Like, right now, it doesn't matter if you're not in your dream band or you're not doing what you want to be doing. Start preparing as if you were going to be doing that tomorrow, you know, as if, as if you had a, a big concert tomorrow. Get ready now because those opportunities are out there and they are going to come. And it's just a matter of are you going to be ready to take advantage of them when they present themselves to you, you know, and you may not know what they are right now, but prepare, you know, and it's hard when you're just at the beginning of your career and you don't have a lot going on to stay motivated and focused. But the point is the more open you are, the more humble you are to everything out there and just experience what comes your way with joy and, and, and an open mind. I can learn from this. I can learn from that, you know, Maybe you don't love this particular kind of music, but guess what? If a lot of other people love it, there must be something about it that's valuable. So what can you learn from it? You know, all that kind of stuff. So life equals preparation, I guess, is what I'd say. And I'm always preparing for the next thing, even as I'm doing these projects now, you know. So I guess that might be <laughs> some advice. One of, uh, one of the exciting things about the Century Project was that, you know, not only had I been Um, you know, doing this clinic stuff and and writing books and being very involved in in the history and and talking about the history and evolution of drumming. But I had, you know, spent many years during my time on the road with Royal Crown Review collecting vintage drums, and I had amassed a pretty decent collection. And for the most part, my collection, you know, I did use certain of those kits, but others uh, of the drum sets and and various, you know, accessories that I had bought over the years, I'd never used. So, um, the Century Project allowed me to delve in and to actually demonstrate the different eras of drumming, whether it be ragtime or big band swing or bebop or rhythm and blues or rockabilly, you know, using a variety of different drum sets. So, um, I actually amassed 11 drum sets for the project, and... Because you know, part of it to me was the excitement of sharing the evolution of the drum set was actually to show these different eras of drums, sizes, how they had changed, um, how they were played, what the various pieces looked like, what were some of the evolutionary in-between pieces. For example, um, with the hi-hat, you, know, you had what was called the low boy, which was a foot-operated cymbal, but it was low to the ground. But you also had handheld um, cymbal sets that were called hand sock cymbals. Uh, that look like a hi-hat, but it's a handheld type of an instrument. Uh, So to be able to show some of those things and to show how our tom-toms, you know, evolved out of what were called originally Chinese toms and how those were, you know, not tunable. Um, the head was just tacked on with these little nails. And then, you know, then you could tune the bottom head of a tom like like a snare drum, but only one side. And finally, you know, by the time you get to Gene Krupa, he's able to actually start using the tom-toms, more like the way we would today in, in the big band setting. And he went to Slingerland and said, well, why don't we be able to tune each head top and bottom individually? So that, you know, sort of being able to physically show all these different, um, manifestations of, 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 how, of the evolution was exciting. Um, and then I ran into a couple months before we started shooting, I did a clinic in Austin, Texas and, um, one of my friends in the vintage drumming community, John Aldridge, came out to that clinic. And John is like one of the world's foremost authorities on vintage drums. He's, uh, he wrote a book about vintage drumming um, back in the very early 90s. In fact, was really out on the forefront of this scene of vintage drum collecting long before um, most of the people today. And John came to the clinic and he loved it. And we went and hung out a little bit, and I said, well, look, man, I'm, I'm going to start shooting this Century Project thing. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to really display the vintage drum sets beautifully. So um, we, we rented a rotating platform, and we actually put all 11 drum sets, not all at the same time, but one after another, on this platform, and then shot them from two angles, straight on, and also from above. Uh, and lit them really beautifully so that, um, you know, we could, as I'm talking about the different eras and the different drum sets, people could sort of see the drum set spin around. They could see it from all different angles and from above. Uh, so one thought that I had was, well, you know, this, we were going to shoot right after the NAM show in, in California, and I was going to be in California, and John Aldridge was going to be in California, and I thought, well, why don't you come out to Drum Channel with me, John, and let's spend a day going through each of these 11 drum sets. First of all, he, he kind of came out as an expert uh, consultant, I guess, and helped me to make sure that with all the gear that we had, that, you know, we had the right sort of era of stand that went with that particular era of kit. And, you know, the hardware was kind of correct. Symbols were kind of correct. I mean, I, I knew a lot of that information myself, but John was really my authoritative go-to guy. And because that's really his thing. I mean, he, he just... He's an unbelievable wellspring of information. So uh, John and so John and I, the idea was to sit down in front of the camera after we had shot these 11 kits on the riser and to talk about each of the kits uh, and to maybe come up with like a 30-minute special feature segment that would go along with the Century Project where it's like, okay, well, you saw all those beautiful drum sets in the Century Project. Now here you can see me and John Aldridge talk about about these things. So needless to say, by the time the two of us got talking and we outlined everything and got it organized, we had about six and a half hours of footage of just the two of us talking. And very shortly after that I realized that there was not going to be room to do a special feature segment on the Century Project that really that this should be a separate companion DVD. So Traps essentially takes the 11 drum sets that are used in the Century Project and really gets into the nuts and bolts of every aspect you can imagine, badges, finishes, lugs, bearing edges, uh, hardware, snares, snare beds, heads, cymbals. Um, and, you know, we really, we really dig into it. But it's, it's not so technical that it's not also a fun journey. And for both the Century Project and Traps, um, I, I use about – 600 pictures between the two uh and in in traps we show a lot of pages from the old catalogs or we show the old drummers themselves utilizing these kits um and uh you know kind of take people on a journey so it's not uh you know it's not dull and dry it's really kind of fun and and we tell some stories about that time period and, and it's just great you know we just really uh we get into it so that's You know, I think some people are confused about what's the difference between the Sentry Project and Traps, and that's basically the difference. The Sentry Project really is more of a presentation, documentary style, demonstrations, and just talking about the history and the time period and how music and the drum set evolved. And Traps is really a nuts and bolts look at um, at the actual drum sets themselves. And, you know, the 11 kits span... Uh, we don't go as far back as 1865, but, but the drums, I think our earliest drum that we have is from 1911 and we have an original Ludwig pedal from 1909 and, uh, and then we have, we, we go all the way up to actually having, uh, an authentic, um, Ringo era oyster black pearl Ludwig, um, uh, Ludwig, uh, kit. So the drums span quite, quite a large, um, range of decades as well. And it's just a fascinating story, the story of the drum set. It's really quite um, interesting and exciting when you learn about it.
2: Is all, about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All, right. Thanks, kids. all right, Royal Crown Review, that is a great song, as all of them are. And I hope you enjoyed tonight's guest, Daniel Glass. Let me give you the contact information for Daniel. It's www.danielglass.com. You can also uh, go to www.drumchannel.com for the Century Project and Traps DVDs as well as books that Daniel has authored including the commandments of early rhythm and blues drumming and the ultimate history of rock and roll drumming. My thanks to Daniel Glass for his patience and fortitude in getting this interview on the air. You have no idea. Also, a big thanks to Mike Dober, who made the initial introduction to get this process started. And, of course, a big thank you to all my listeners and KRCBFM supporters. And remember, if you have something important you want to say, you're never going to find a superior way. You've got to say it with percussion. End of discussion. Keep on the sunny side of the street. We'll talk soon. Good night. And as usual, we leave you with the traveling wheelberries because it is the end of the line.
2: Well, it's all. On the rim, the of the waiting for someone to tell you everything. At the end of the line, of the line. Sit around and wonder what tomorrow will bring. The the line, maybe a diamond the Well, it's all right even if they say you're wrong. Well, it's all, all right. Sometimes you gotta be. Somewhere down the road when somebody plays At the end of the line the Purple Haze Happy to feel that at the end of the fight, of a fight. It don't matter if you're by my side. At the end of a fight, I'm satisfied. Well, it's all
0: North Bay Public Media KRCB FM Windsor, Santa Rosa News, Arts, Ideas Where You Are On Air at 91.1 and 90.9 Streaming Worldwide at krcb.org You can also find us on Comcast Channels 961 and 202 Democracy Now follows immediately at 12 midnight Have a good morning